You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. We're here today with another edition of Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and joining me today is a special guest. We're going to say his name in two ways. We just had a lengthy conversation about how to say his name. So in the States, he's known as Michael Uliberry, right? Did I get that right? <laughs> but the actual correct pronunciation of his name is Michael Ulibari. Did I get that? Yeah. Okay. Good job. So, I always feel like I want to be respectful and say the name correctly, but if you are known, you know, you're known as more as sort of the English pronunciation. So just want to make sure everybody recognizes you. And I'm going to steal my intro from your LinkedIn profile. So man of God, social entrepreneur, access to excellence, founder, justice reform champion, conscious cannabis advocate mental wellness coach, digital storyteller, community influencer. Does that cover it? Yeah. I haven't seen that profile for a while, but yeah. There must be a lot more, but those must be the highlights. Yeah. Yeah. So we were connected uh, through a Facebook group and you are, you know, you want to get out there and tell your story so that you know, other people can learn from your varied experience because you have a lot of different experiences that really are worthy of conversation. And if I can just highlight a couple, you know, you've experienced trauma in your life. You were a gang member at some point in your life. You spent some time in prison. You have, you know, turned your life around to be, um, you know, to do much more positive things and be a more positive influence on our community. So I want to talk about all that. And I really want to start sort of from the beginning, because I don't think any of us can be defined by one thing we've done or one experience we've had. I think we all have, you know, are the product of different experiences that we've had over the course of our lifetime. So why don't we start at the beginning? And kind of talk about your childhood. Like, where did you grow up? You know, what was your childhood like? I grew up in Salt Lake City um, to a single mother. My dad was present in a very interesting way. My mother worked for him. So I interacted with him, but not as a parent. Now I'm learning that I was born into a lot of trauma. My mother and siblings experienced a lot of trauma. I didn't know this as a younger person, but... My mother raises very well. She raises in church. She instilled very good values. She was a very hard worker, a very honest person. So that's what I knew of my mother. And she just worked. She raised a lot of kids. I'm the youngest of nine. By far, the, my closest sibling is 11 years older than me. Uh, my mom's 80. She'll be 82. And... She, I was raised with a lot of my nephews. My sisters and them were involved in drugs and prison and all that stuff by the time I was um, 
just a young, young kid, probably eight, nine, ten. So my mom has always had kids in the house, grandkids. I always took care of grandkids. So we all were just, we didn't have no supervision. My mom took, she always had to end the relationships that she was in because they didn't want to take on additional kids. So, um, so would you say that you had a fatherless home? Yes, yes, yes and no. So my mom was married for the majority of my life from I was about three to I think he passed away when I was around 19. But every time she would take in kids, she would, they would, they would kind of separate for a while. Um, but he was, he didn't take on a parental role. That, that was a very interesting story in itself. So he was just um, there, but he wasn't really like being a father. No, but the role model, the role, the modeling that I saw was very, he was the stash house for, for drugs. Like we were the stash house. He was an older guy. He owned property. He had everything, you know, set legit, but he, we were the stash house. We all just had crazy stuff going on in the house. <clears throat> Gosh, maybe um, we should set aside another podcast just to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> the stories in my family are insane. Like, yeah. Well, did you um, know that they were insane at the time? Or was it just... No. No, very, very normal. It's funny because I had this conversation a couple of days ago where I was doing my best to tell it as accurately as I could. But all we ever saw, we... Like, my mom was the only, like, the women were the only people we saw work. All the men were hustlers or, like, own businesses, drug money businesses, and um, are in and out of prison. That's just what we saw. We, I, we never saw anything, anything other. Um, so you definitely did not grow up with that 1950s image of the dad goes to work and mom stays home and bakes cookies. Oh, definitely not. No. No. Wow. Um, so when you were a kid then, and you were seeing all that, what did you aspire to be? I mean, did you have fantasies of being like, you know, a police officer or a baseball player or just hustle until you get some money and start a legit business? So you always did. thought you'd everybody... be an entrepreneur. Oh yeah. 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 For sure. Oh, that's interesting. Do you feel like you missed out though? Like maybe you didn't realize that at the time Do but do you feel like, you know, your life's path maybe had a lot to do with the fact that you didn't really have like a dad, like a, a male role model? Oh, yeah. Well, a positive male role model. I did have male role models, but all bad. Like my older brother was a huge role model, but he was in and out of prison. But if they were celebrated, like all I remember my brother seeing coming home was having these big old elaborate celebrations for him coming home and then. And he'd come around, he'd have these nice cars and these girls, and then he'd go back to prison. And then my cousins would get out. It was just a thing, you know? So it was like these guys were celebrated when they'd come out. So, so it was kind of... Yeah, go ahead. Know. No, I would just... So it, it was never portrayed in a bad way. And we would get calls from prison. And I remember visiting my brother in prison, and we used to be able to go in and take him food. And it'd be like this big old, like, picnic out there with all the inmates and their kids with like so to me there wasn't as a young kid a bad like I knew prison was a bad place but I didn't see it in that way you know and um so yeah, there was no real there wasn't shame associated with it oh no 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 a lot of pride 
Oh wow! Yeah. Really oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's even name like there's a name for like Mexican or like Latin like Latinos that are in prison like Pintos like the OGs like those are the guys that yeah no those are the guys that people look up to with the big old mud like yeah that was my brother my brother was a he was a shot caller wow he was always celebrated in or out of prison wherever he went you know and my that cousins is... were the same way and the, so the did guys you kind of sister. aspire to be that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you knew from young, a young age that you were going to go to jail at some point and that would be sort of like a rite of passage? Oh, I was already in the system at like 12 years old, 13 years old. So like what did you do? System, what was your like, first offense? I, I was just, I, you know, I just had a lot of, I just experienced a lot. Um, I remember constantly being with my mom because I was just a little mama's boy. And picking up my sisters who were in abusive relationships. So I just experienced crazy trauma since a kid. And I just was just angry. And they took us in. They taught us how to box. So now I'm angry and I know how to fight. So I just was mm. always in and out. Stuff in school. They take us to these places. We get in fights. Always fights. The majority of my stuff is fights. Okay. Well, you know, I've always heard that there's some families that they learn how to communicate with words. And then some families, if they don't really know, if that's not encouraged, you know, expressing your feelings and your thoughts, you, you just use communicate physically and that can be with yeah. violence. Yeah. yeah. You would agree with that? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I've read some stuff that to get that stress out that when we don't know how to actively do it, like men use violence. Males use violence to, to release that aggression inside. Were you allowed to cry? Like, could you cry? Or would that be, you would just be made uh, Yeah, Donald. probably not. Like, I've never even seen my mom cry. Really? Yeah. My mom is just like this strong, strong person. Like, she had no choice, you know? Very yeah. Kids are home, so. Your mom sounds like a strong lady. I feel like I should interview her next. <laughs> you know what? She, she is. She's an amazing, like, the more now that she gets older, she's starting to, I'm starting to hear some of her traumas. So I'm getting a better understanding of, like, my family, how this generational trauma just can, it just can, it just been there for a year. For, yes. you know, like, my grandparents kind of a thing. And... Um, now I realize how much stronger she is than I thought. And she's just like, yeah, amazing. Yeah, so. you, you pass it on. It becomes, it's almost like genetic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you said that you had trauma, but you didn't see the exposure to people going in and out of prison. You didn't see that as the trauma. Well, I don't want to speak for you. I, I, I'm. It sounds like that wasn't the trauma. So where are the anger? Where did the anger come from? If it wasn't from, you know, being resentful that people were in prison because that was, that was kind of a source of pride. So where did the anger come from? I'm pretty sure it came from my situation with my father. I'm in digging in therapy and that's kind of at a place where we're at right now. And yeah, because I really didn't, I mean, I really can't pinpoint to anything else. Cause I, I was very well loved. Like, all my siblings loved me. I experienced a lot of love as a kid, for sure. Um, I was very spoiled. So I didn't have a lack, you know. Um, I would think either there or just seeing my sisters be abused and not be able to do anything. 
because when I was, when I did get to the age of 12 or 13, I remember beating my sister's boyfriend with the, with the golf club because he beat her up. Like, I remember at those ages, like going and stick, when me and my friends were old enough, like we'd go and we'd try to stick up for my sister. So I'm pretty sure that had a huge part in, in, in it. Yeah. But I was already, maybe not, I guess I probably was seeing that stuff since way younger age than I could even remember, but. I would so, think that's probably an, an also a good place. Those two places, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's hard to watch someone you love being suffering just in general, whatever that might look like, and not really being able to do anything about it. Yeah. But let's talk about your biological dad. So that was a relationship that your mom had that resulted in you. I mean, I don't want to pry into your mom's life, but what was the, what was that relationship and how come you couldn't have a relationship with your biological father? Um, well, I think him and my mom just had an affair. He was married. My mom worked for him. She was the secretary. They had an affair. Um, yeah, I think that she didn't she didn't really tell him. I'm sure he knew, but I don't think she told him until I had my son and she showed him a picture and he kind of just was like, um, yeah, he it was knew. interesting. He knew that. I don't know. I'm son. sure he probably, he did. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. But when she showed him the picture, she said he kind of broke down and cried. So I'm guessing he knew at that point you know at that point i think i was 18 years old or something but oh really um, oh so this was much later it wasn't like a baby picture <laughs> okay. oh it was a picture of my son okay she showed him a picture of my son when he was born yeah so but it was a very interesting like he he made sure my mom made more money than she's supposed to so he, in his way, he was a big, his family was huge in the LDS church. Huge, huge, huge. Um, was huge in what? I didn't hear that part. LDS church in Utah. Okay. Like his family was huge in the LDS church. So um, it was just interesting because my mom continued to work for him like all my uh, young life. I mean, till he passed away, I think I was probably like 19. She worked with him. Did you meet him? Yeah, I see him all the time. I go, I but go. Was to my it, mom, it wasn't I, like, "Hey, Dad." <laughs> no, 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 no. I addressed him by his name. And was there ever any sort of acknowledgement that you're my father, or it was no. you treated him like your mom's boss? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you were a kid, like you must have started at some point asking questions, like, "Hey, where's my dad?" Oh, I knew. No, my mom told me. She was always honest with you about it. Oh, mm -hmm. And was there a point when you were like, well, I'd like to, you know, I want to see my dad. I want to know my dad. Or like, how did I, that work? At that point, I didn't even care. I was young. I was just angry. You know, just, I, that was the last thing I was thinking of. About, was that. And then he passed away when I was 19. Okay. So you were young. So I don't even think I cried when he died just kind of like a, mm. so he was kind of like a stranger to you really a bit <laughs> yeah yeah 
I mean, my my dad, I didn't know my dad either. And you knew more of your dad than I knew of my dad. And my dad died. And people are like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, it's really okay. I didn't know him. He was a stranger. So yeah. I can relate to that. Um, but it is kind of weird to see the person walking around and know that's your dad. Yeah. I'm... I'm gonna have, I'm, sure I'm gonna have to spend some time storing that out when I get there. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sure. I don't. I don't want to raise. No, no, no. I, I'm. I'll tell you this. I'm. I'm. I'm probably gonna be the most authentic, open person. I'm all the way. I. I love to share my story because the more I tell it, the more I can comprehend it. Yeah. So the better I can tell it going forward. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on yeah. here and talking about it because I'm. I'm so fascinated by all these things and especially the success stories. You know, people who overcome all these traumas to do really good things with their lives. Because I think, um, you know, there's so many people we can look at someone who's in prison and did something, you know, bad and not really understand. Well, who is that person? You know, what did what happened to them in their lifetime that led to this? You know, it's interesting to me. I see babies and I start having all these deep thoughts. Like they all have so much potential, mm -hmm. but there's going to be things that happen to them in their lifetime that might interfere with that. And there are, some of them will go on to do wonderful things and some won't. And it's not necessarily because they couldn't. It's just because they didn't get the same influence in life, the same, you know, love and nurturing. And I'm, I'm just really interested in those things. So thanks for talking about it. Yeah. And that's why I try to, the, the goal of, of my life right now is to try to be that example to other people because representation is huge, right? Like if people in prison see that I was able to do this and my story gets crazy, like, I, when I decided to really start making this move, like I really came from like a low, the lowest of the places I could probably could have started from. So I'm not, I don't feel that I'm any more capable than anybody else. I was just driven. I was just like, I'm not going to be back in the system. So the more I accomplish and the more I can do, the more people can see what's possible. And that's kind of how I got off into like the digital media was... That's a space that we could control. You can't tell me you I can't have a YouTube channel or a podcast because I got a felony. And I see a lot of people that are making a lot of impact in these spaces that have been to prison. You know, so yeah, like that's how, but um, we'll get into that at some later time. But well, you know, I'm sort of I'm sort of conflicted on something you said. You know that if you know if you can do it anyone can something to that effect and i believe that on some level but i think sometimes people like you think that about themselves but sometimes people don't have the resources that they really need to be able to do it do you know what i mean like people who are successful often say well if i did it anyone can do it but that's not always true you just think that because you did it do you know what i mean yeah um, it, it takes so much for someone to be successful, like whatever that looks like for you, you know, having the right people around you, having the right influences around you, um, having the right opportunities available to you. Um, so sometimes it just is a little bit harder. So my point is that I want you to give yourself a lot of credit okay. for what you've accomplished. 
I agree. I agree with that 100%. I was fortunate to have found out through my church prior to going back to prison this my second time. So I had a really good support system. So that's where the access to excellence came in is we build on that. We make sure that the guys that want to start in there and show effort, they'll have a support system when they get out. Mm-hmm. They'll have, yeah. you know, so, but no, I, I agree. I, hey, you know what? I applaud myself every day because everything that I've done, I've dug, I've researched, I've been on YouTube. I watched two, three hours of YouTube every morning. Like it's, I'm constantly educating myself on things you know and opportunities and ways and finding people to collaborate like i got a huge people a group of people that i collaborate with to provide opportunities for other people because you're right the opportunities are the the key without the opportunities be in my situation i always knew that i was i didn't want to live that life but i didn't see the opportunities so i can i continue down that path right but yeah. We're trying to provide other opportunities. We're trying to make these people see that there is opportunities for them if they want to put the effort in. Because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to get from there to where I'm at. So, you know, I, I, I'm maybe I'm jumping ahead. I feel like I want to get a little bit more of your timeline first. So you said that you were in the system from age 12. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what was like your first thing? I feel like we got off track on that one. Oh. Yeah, I the first offense. I'm going to put that in finger quotes. But I think the first few times we were just like stuff in school, just not going to school and getting picked up. And they would take us to it was called youth services. So they would hold you there till your parents would come pick you up. It was like you you weren't in the system yet. They didn't want to put you get your name involved in the system because you weren't necessarily committing like chart crimes and stuff. And then. I started going to detention probably around 13 or 14 for fighting. Usually we'd go to the malls and we'd fight kids from other schools. And there was just a lot of gang activity going on in that time in, in Salt Lake, like in Rose Park and Glendale areas. Um, there was a lot of influx from California coming in. So we had like them bringing in new gangs. There's so many movies. Like the gangs in Utah are based off of like the movie Colors. 21st Street, Diamond Street, like. We saw it, then we emulated it, but yeah, so, and I was about 13 and yeah, we were just fighting. But, um, so you weren't aware of gangs in, in your neighborhood from the time you were a kid? Yeah. Oh yeah. My brothers, my brother and my cousin were like, they started one of the big gangs in Utah. What was it called? Diamond Street. Okay. I'm. You know, my knowledge of gangs is like what I see on television. <laughs> so bear with me. <laughs> um, so did you like when, what age do they start, start sort of initiating you or, you know, introducing you to the gang activity? For me, it was more of, I really wasn't into that in the beginning, but just because my family was, we were just drawn. We were just. By guilty by association kind of a thing, you know? So, like, what do you have to do to be in a gang? Is there sort of, like, you just say, like, hey, I'm in the gang now? Or is there uh, some it, sort of, you no, know, you gotta fight, amazing? You gotta, <laughs> yeah, you, you get jumped in. You They pick a group of guys and you fight them. Oh, so do you have to ask to be in the gang? Or is this by invitation only? Uh, no, you, they'll hang around with them for a while and they'll let you know how they fill you out. So you sort of know who they are. 
Yeah, these are all guys we all grew up with. Yeah, we all grew up through elementary school and all that stuff. Okay, so then, like, what was it like for you? What did you have to do? I got jumped in. I fought. I can't remember how many guys, but yeah, they just circle around you and you fight them, and they want to see if you're gonna, what you're gonna do, how you're gonna respond. Are you gonna stand up for yourself? Are you gonna cower down and crumble up? If you do that, like, they're probably not gonna let you in. But if you stand and you fight back and so you're down then so you knew that was going to happen you were expecting oh yeah 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 yeah. everybody knows it's not so a surprise. how many guys were there i don't remember i don't i just remember oh i just remember going in there and one of them just hit me and we just started going and just started fighting that sounds very scary or yeah whatever so <laughs> our gang was 21st street so you had to do it for 21 seconds 21 seconds, which doesn't even sound that time. long, but oh my god, does. it's so long. Yeah, like it I was watching so UFC long. last night, and uh, <laughs> it's like those I don't know how long those rounds are, but they seem long. Yeah, um, so did you get your ass beat? Oh, yeah, yeah, like crack my tooth, like big old lumps in my eye. Yeah, so see, this just sounds crazy to me. Like, why would someone get their ass beat so they could be in a gang? You know, it's an interesting thing because um, gangs are really a place where, like, a lot of people get, get that acceptance they don't get from it. Like, if you're an angry, violent person and everybody else is telling you you're this bad person, but you go over there and you get celebrated for being crazy and being down to fight, you know what I mean? You're considered down and you get credibility. So now you find a space where I'm accepted and comfortable. People are comfortable with me and my behaviors, you know? That I don't see it like I was saw, I saw violence my whole life. I don't know. Yeah. I just just a side note real quick. It was interesting because I dated this woman and she went in front of my around my family and we're loud. And she was like, Your family's so violent. And I was like, What are you talking about? So I had to she questioned me on what my where did I think violence was? And I was like, Oh, somebody with the gets hit and gets a black guy, that's not violence. And growing up, it was that normalized. But yeah. So yeah. It was just How old were you when that happened? When you were dating the girl? Oh, that was, oh, I was probably in my 30, 34. Oh, wow. Wow. I so think. you didn't even have that realization until later. No, no. Like violence to me was like someone getting their butt beat, like bad, like lumped up. That was violence. It was just so crazy that, that my, my level of what I thought violence started at was just so different than what somebody who had never experienced that. Yeah. So, so this is a hard question for me to ask, but you saw violence towards women. Did you engage in that too? No. Okay. No. Mm -mm. I, yeah, no. If I even get to the point where I feel that way, I'll end relationship. If I feel like I'm ever going to lose control, I'm like, no, I'm that, that's one of my biggest fears. So that's interesting, though, that you that was one one thing that was sort of normal in your environment that you, you know, just didn't engage in. Yeah. So how old were you when you were when you got into the gang, when you were jumped? Oh, man, probably like 13, I would say. Wow, that is so young. Oh, I was in junior high, so 13, 14. Is that like the typical age or were you? maybe younger yeah. it is okay yeah and then what tell me what gang life is like like is this pretty much what you live and breathe 
you know, you go to school, but you're always in the gang, right? You just ne it's never off time. It seems, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to describe because I don't want to portray it like it's something really cool, but it's the life of style is not bad because you don't, until people start getting shot and going to prison and stuff, but it's just people hanging out, always having parties on the weekends. Everybody's probably hustling or like selling weed or something, not really going to school. So it's just a big old party, hanging out during the day, you know. And then every once in a while, you run into somebody that you don't get along with. Do you think that, are there any movies or TV shows you've seen that you think are a pretty accurate portrayal of what gang life is? Um, I would say, because it, it, it varies. It's very, very different. Um, in Salt Lake, in Rose Park, you might have a concentration like five or six gangs that don't get along. Or California, it's like certain cities, right, or neighborhoods that you just don't go in. Like you in Salt Lake, you might live a block away from when you're enemies. So I think all of them portray it in, in a small way accurately. A lot of them, they probably throw a lot of glitz and glam. And it's not a whole bunch of like driving down the street, turning the corner, shooting at people. That's happened, but not. My, I grew up in the era of like the drive-by shootings, which is kind of a lot of craziness. Um, but yeah, like, I, I can't say, I'm not sure. Um, I say I'll portray it in a way. Well, the, I mean, what, like my perception based upon, again, like television is, you know, you have to be a drug dealer or you have to, you know, do this or you have to do that. Is, is that, was that what it was like for you or that was just part of the culture anyway in your neighborhood? That's just part of the culture anyways. Yeah. And most people have been in and out of the system that they usually can't get jobs anyways. So they might have a job and party on the weekends, but it's just a, a, just a short period of time for they slide back into the life. So then when would, when did you go to prison for the first time? Like, when did that happen? And what, what happened that you ended up there? So, so I made it all the way through the juvenile system, even to juvenile prison. I went to all the way. I got out of there when I was 18, when I was 19. Um, when I was 18, I got out for nine months and me and my friends were doing a drug deal that went bad and one of the guys got killed and at 19, I went to prison for that. What were you charged with? I got charged with the homicide. Wow. Mm. So, at 19. Yeah. So what, how did you, how are you out? I'm looking at my watch. Like I'm thinking... Someone dies, you're in prison the rest of your um, life. Obviously, that's not the case. Man, I, my story, that's what makes my story so interesting. <laughs> it really gets crazier, isn't it? So I, I, in all honesty, like I didn't do it. I, I was part, I was there and I was part of it. What happened is one of the guys told the turn states and he switched mine in his role. And at trial, they figured that out. So I ended up pleading guilty to two robbery charges. Okay. So I went to prison. Two of us, there was a total of five of us. Two of us ended up going to prison. The other three didn't go. One got found not guilty. The guy that told got him and his brother off in the deal. I 
originally got nine years. I earned about a year and a half off. So I did, no, I earned about a, I did seven years and nine months is what I ended up doing. And you and went in at 19? 19. I got out. I was just almost 26, or 27, I think. I got out. So you spent a good part of your 20s in prison. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. All of it. I mean, pretty much all of my young adult life. Well, did you end up back in after around 26? Mm-hmm. For how long? Well, not around 26. So I, you know, I did go back and I went back on a violation for two years. And then I got out of prison. Or go ahead. What was the violation? Um, drugs. Drugs. I got out, went through, got off parole. But I, so I got out and I got, actually got in trouble like a year after, or a few months after I got out, six months after I got out. I never got, in, I never got arrested for it. I never got charged with it. The guy that I was involved with, he got arrested. He was fighting the charge, never said nothing. Um, I got off of parole. I moved out to Las Vegas, went to school, finished my college degree, started a really cool career in music, uh, had a really good job at this company. Um, they started moving me around, traveling. When they moved me back to Las Vegas, the marshals came and arrested me on this charge. It was like six and a half years prior. Oh. So that was 10 years ago. How old are you now? I'm 44. Um, 10 years ago, they came, showed up. Um, I was able to bail out, fight the charge for a couple years. Ended up going back to prison for four years. Um, but I already had built this momentum. I first yeah. I saw like, okay, these people will give me a chance. Like people are going to let me with a felony, like, this guy, he knew I had a felony. He knew my past history and he hired me and I was making very good money. And he even helped me move up in the company. And I saw that he was willing to give me a chance. When I got arrested and I came back, I bailed out, I came back. Um, he hired me right back and I was shocked. And he was like, I don't know that guy. I know this guy. And I want this guy working for me. So that was like this huge paradigm shift. Like, okay, man. People don't really care about who I used to be as long as this is who I am. So I was able to carry that momentum into my prison sentence. And the interesting thing is when I went back, there was a, there was a gang war between the South side and the North side. And unbeknownst to myself, the gang that I was associated with had started associating with the North siders. And there was lockdown on this A and B we got out one day and the other gang got out one day. And um, so I just got thrown into this situation that I had just like, I removed myself from so long ago. So you kind of and found I, yourself immersed in it again. Yeah. And I had this opportunity and to go to this drug program and I'd never really had a drug issue, but it's one place that the gang that I was associated with could live on that yard. Um, and I did the program. And then you had to go back unless you would contribute back to the program. It's like um, drug court. Drug, no, it's a, no, it's a program inside the prison, though, a drug program. Oh, okay. Inside the prison. I was still doing a prison sentence. So I did the program for a year, and they take four months off your sentence. But then they move you back unless you start to get – it's called giving back to the program. So I started teaching classes, and um, I just had this, like, this knack for it. 
And the people, like, I knew, because I knew a lot of these guys that were from the different gangs and stuff in there. Like, we all grew up together. So they would come to my class because I'd make it at least decent. You know, make, I wouldn't make it, like, yeah. some classes. I'd, um, and I just had this, people people in there saw something in me and just started, like, making these connections, people from the outside. And um, there was a couple of guys couple of volunteers particularly that like I've connected with and continue to have like um contact with that have like been huge but I just I was able to carry that momentum in there and I was just said you know I'm getting out of here I'm, I'm done I'm not yeah. coming back I'd experienced life for the first time like outside of like from when I was 12 years old I've been on either in prison or on parole or probation so I experienced this short like three years without having it and it just like you were like, this is what life can be. Yeah. Well, let me back up a little bit. So you get out of prison at 26. Did you have the big party, the big welcome home party? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> and so did you have regret, though? I mean, you know, to miss out on such a huge chunk of your young life in your 20s, I feel like a lot of us, we just sort of, you know, we come of age now, although you were probably mature because you had experienced so much, but the, I think the average kid, you kind of, you're just learning more about yourself and how to be a grown up and how to get along in the world in your twenties. Maybe that wasn't your experience though. No. Um, Cause everybody that I grew up with was in prison too. We were just talking about it the other day and, um, 90% of my friends have went through prison. You were time. so independent young. You know, I'm thinking of maybe a typical, I probably shouldn't say typical because maybe typical for me is, you know, you're, you're kind of under your parents' thumb and through high school. And then maybe you go away to college and then you get some independence, but you were independent really young. Mm -hmm. So oh, yeah. you're, that was so that was different for me. You. you didn't need your twenties to, to learn how to be a grown up. You kind of were. Oh yeah. I know. I had, yeah, I've had, I was making my own money when I was 16 years old, 15, 16 years old. But looking know. back on that, I mean, you're, you know, I'm sure you know that your brain isn't even fully developed until your mid twenties. Mm -hmm. So you're really a kid making grown up decisions. Yeah, for sure. So when you look back on that, or, or even at the time, it, it sounds like it wasn't, but I don't want to speak for you. Was there regret that you had missed all those years? Or did you not, not feel at, that way? Not at the time. No, no. It's, it's kind of crazy to say, and it's really strange to hear myself say it, but like, that's where I wanted to be. That was so my it wasn't activity. like, oh my God, where I'm going to jail. It wasn't like, no, that. It was like no, okay. no. And it was like the crazier thing that you were going to prison for, the more credibility you had. It was a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. There really, it's crazy because there really is a life. There's guys that will commit crimes in prison to stay in prison, to be like shot callers for their gang. Like I know really good. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. I, yeah, it was, it was normal. I was, it wasn't, it wasn't, a, it, I wasn't doing, it was, I wasn't doing nothing wrong. I so was, it's not like life is all that different. It just, it changes because the environment is different, but you know, whoever you are on the outside is who you are on the inside. Yeah. 
So, so what's sort of your job, putting that in finger quotes for anyone who's listening and not watching, what, what's your job when you're, in, when you're in prison? Is it just to write it out until you can get out or is, what's going on on the inside? Yeah, well, there's, there's ways that you could like, there's, there's uh, jobs you could have that are, they pay very little, but they'll provide your basics. Um, there's opportunities to somewhat educate yourself. When I was there, we had a couple of actually, we had a university and a community college in there. Um, I don't think they have those things anymore. Um, but they have like programs, life skills. Yeah, yeah. So it just depends on where you're at in your mind. If you're the go to school type, then you're going to school. But some people just hang out and hustle. Like you might run a store or you might hustle drugs or whatever. And Go to the gym, play basketball, go out to the yard, walk around, work out. What did you do? I I stood in school. I've always been. I've always been. Even when I was getting in trouble, I still I still like school. I've always been a big learner. So yeah, I learned architecture. I got my associates in architecture while I was there. I learned how to build car engines, build construction management. Um, I learned how to cook in there. Well, I went to a cooking class. I learned how to cook. I went to a cooking class <laughs> for a year, and I still can't cook. But they were ways to get time shaved off your sentence too, while keeping you. Um, if you didn't go to school, you were just stuck in your section all day. I've heard from some people I know that spent time in prison that um, you know little things become really important. Like the example that was given to me was your toilet paper. What did you think about the um, corrections officers? You know, I just kind of, there was some that were just, they were hard. They were there just to be difficult. Um, there was some of them that, for the most part, most of them just, they were there to do their job. And then there were some pretty decent ones too. Yeah, there's some really good ones. There's some guys that they had there that would really had an interest in like, especially some of the people that there for like harder stuff. Like try to steer them in the right directions and try to help them out and stuff. So, so, so you got out of prison at twenty six. You ended up back in. So, when did that shift start happening? Where you were sort of like, I don't want this life anymore. And what what sparked it? So, I got off of parole, and I moved to Las Vegas. And that's where I got, I started driving a truck for this company. I had a CDL and then a position came open inside and moved inside and just started moving up. And I started making legit money because I knew if I hustled again, that this charge that I knew was just waiting out there could probably come up. So I knew I had to like do my best to just lay low. Is that why you moved out of the state? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And were your gang members, I don't know what I'm supposed to call them, <laughs> your friends, <laughs> your gang friends, um, were they like, you know, I've, I've only seen again in the movies, I'm sorry, I have to go there, but like once you're in a gang, you can't leave the gang. Like that's it. <laughs> Is that true? Obviously no. No, and the interesting thing, and this has been like a really cool experience that I just had recently, but we all did so much time when we got out, nobody wanted to go back to it. And most of them didn't. A couple of them went back on, 
violations and stuff, but nobody wanted to go back. And I'd moved away and I still kind of had like, I didn't know, I didn't see these guys getting out. So I didn't know where everybody's mind was, but I've started to see them lately at like local events and not knowing what to expect. But they're all like, oh man, we don't care about that stuff. Hey, I don't want to go back to prison. So it's, I think it's something that we did as kids because it was happening at the time. Yeah. But then we went yeah. to prison and it really matured a lot of us because we all got so much time. Most of the people that I grew up with, we all went through the juvenile system together and we all went and got seven years plus. There was a few that might've got three or four here and there, but the majority of us, and some of them are doing life. Multiple of them guys are still doing life. But it just like, it'll do something to you. It'll really, it, it'll set you straight to go in there at such a young age and do so much time and see so much crazy stuff happen. And know that you're only participating in that because we, the, the thing that I, that, I, that I like about Utah is we don't have those deep, like, 10-generation gang ties. Like, it's kind of started with us and our older, older, and they're all, like, we're all in our 40s and they're in their 50s. Like, they're all driving low-rider cars and stuff now, working jobs, you know? California, you see it's, like, generational. Like, the, the grandparents are in it. So, like, we didn't really have that. So, our gang kind of dissolved. There's still a few of the younger guys that carry it on. When I went back, I, I saw a few of them that carried it on, and that's how the kind of gang shifted. But I think if you was to get out, you just had to get jumped out. And you just couldn't, you just couldn't associate with your gang anymore kind of i think that's one of the rules were but you had said that there's sort of a sense of pride associated with going to prison too like does that just kind of wear off like does the pride the pride is like the burden of being in prison and missing out on life does that kind of overshadow the pride i think I think being proud about going to prison and having those be like, they're called stripes, like having stripes is like, it's valid in those circles. If I went back today, it would probably still be valid in those circles, but it's just no longer valid in my life today. Like it used to be a source of shame, huge source of shame. Like I wouldn't even tell people, like I've ended relationships because it came to that place and I just didn't want to divulge that information. But now that I tell it from a different perspective, you know, from the a place where I'm winning, you know, it's it's lot it's a lot different. But I think you just get over it when you stop being like when I moved to Las Vegas and I had this career going for me. Now it's like I'm not going to tell these guys I'm in prison. Like why do I want to share this part of my life with anybody else? You know, so it was no longer valid. I couldn't go in there like yeah, I've been to prison, man. Now you guys need to make me the vice president or something. You know, it's. Those things don't matter in those circles. So that was the first time in your life that you had shame around it instead of pride. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So that must have been a different experience. Yeah. So did you have the job lined up when you left or did you just, were you like, I got to get out of here and you went to Vegas? So during my, just during my days of like hustling, we was back and forth to Vegas. We'd always go party in Vegas. So I lived out in Vegas a few times. It's the only place I knew. Um, so I just went over there. And I think the first job I had was like driving paint for Sherwin-Williams or something. And they found out I had a felony, so they let me go. 
And this guy was just like, come in, man, bring your CDO. That's what I was going to ask you is, didn't you have to do a criminal background check? Um, this guy, I was just straight up with him. I was like, hey, man, I don't want to mess with you. I, I got a felony. You know, I took care of it a long time ago. And he's like, I don't care if you got a CDO, you could drive. I don't care. So that was a really big opportunity for you, though, because still today, it's a big problem that a lot of people that come out of prison, they maybe they don't want to go back to the old life, but they don't know how else not to because it's hard to get jobs. Well, that's changing big. I I don't know, uh, well, like justice reform, but I know you guys are like leaps and bounds ahead of us. But it's people are more willing now um, to hire and not just labor shortage wise. More people are opening up to it. A lot of people are saying it's because like they say in Utah, one out of three families have somebody on probation or parole in Utah. I don't know like countrywide what it is. So that's the saying a lot of these LDS families have kids that are probably have been involved in drugs and stuff like that. So a lot of people are being more, but it's a narrative that the prison, that the system pushes that I believed in it, that restricts people and people don't like, they don't, they're not willing to venture out. They're not willing to venture out and um, look for jobs beyond construction or uh, food server or places that are felon friendly, like production. They're not willing to go and seek jobs in other places or look for entrepreneurship. So you did this, you did the truck driving and you kind of had this old thing, you know, uh, hanging over your head. Were you always, was that always in the back of your mind? Were you always kind of worried about that catching up with you? Yeah, I did. But it started to lessen as time went on. Like I was like, okay, yeah, four years have passed, you know, so nothing's happened. Maybe nothing's going to happen. So I just said, okay, well, I'm just going to keep moving in this direction. Like I got something good going. So I feel like my lawyer brain is working. You, but you must have had a warrant out for your arrest in Utah, right? No, it's not until not until they charged me three months before the statute of limitations was up. So I got charged six years and nine months after my charge. So, so did you? You how did you find out about that? Because you were in Vegas, right? They, I was at work, and. They transferred a call and this guy, Mike, was just like, hey, bro, I ain't no genius, but something ain't right. Oh, no. And he's like, somebody asked for you, but the way they asked for your name. And I picked up the phone and he's like, hi, is this Mike? And I said, yeah. And they came through the door. In Vegas? Yeah, at my, at my place of employment. So was it Vegas officials that arrested you? U.S. Marshals. Oh, that's right. You said that earlier. So I guess they do extradition. <laughs> yeah. Is so that what happened? Jail in Vegas. And then they came and extradited me about a month later. <sighs> Man, that must have been a real buzzkill. You know, <laughs> put it mildly. You know what? That was probably like mentally the lowest point in my life. Mm. Well, no, maybe not. But yeah, I would say yeah. But um Well, I can make assumptions, but can you explain that more? Like why that was the lowest point? Because I, I knew it was a serious charge and I knew I'd already been to prison on a really serious charge. And I just seen people come in and out of prison and like go back on a serious charge and the pro board just be like, you are done. 
Like, don't even go sit down. Don't even, don't even think about coming out. Because it was a subsequent charge? Yeah, and violence. So Mm -hmm. it was just like, okay, well, I just built this life. I just got, you know what I mean? I just, like, got everything going. I just got a manager position in Palm Springs. I was getting ready to transfer. And I was just like, yeah, I was just slow. I was just like, I didn't know if I was going to make it through it. So you had, but you had like a completely different life by then in Vegas. Like you had a job, you were making money. Did you own a house? Did you have a yep. girlfriend? I had no, I wasn't dating anyone, but I had a house and I just graduated school from UNLV in music. Um, but that must have, that stuff must have all helped you though when, when you were sentenced. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So I, was, I had money now, right? That wasn't like, and so I was able to bail out. Um, I moved back here for a little bit and my pastor got me connected with a really good attorney. I was able to pay for him and I had two years that I was on bail and I just continued to keep doing the things I was doing, going to therapy and all that. And, um, I actually, the feds came in and charged me with career offender at that time. So because it was my third violent charge. Um, my first one, the second one I went to prison was drugs, which the amount of drugs and the federal system was considered a violent charge because of the amount and then this. So, um, the prosecutors, state and federal prosecutors got together and agreed to let me do eight years in federal prison. And I would plead to a second degree in the, the state Well, my state judge was just like nope you're going to prison and then you go do your eight years so they got together and the prosecutors were like just let them do state time and my pastor was used to sit on the board and um my judge my federal judge just he spoke kindly to me he was like look man the guy i see in front of me is like not the person who was at this place in time yeah you show this and he spoke he's like just gave me a lot of encouragement He's like, I got a call from somebody and they vouched for you. And he's like, that meant everything to me. And when I went to state prison, my pastor had set up, like I said, he had sat on the board at one time and he gave him a call. I was like, hey, I don't know who he was at this time, but this is the person that I know. And they gave me 54 months and I was able to work eight months off, but I was able to stay in a program that like I had for four years, I had access to therapists, I had access to like. I was a librarian, so I had access to books. I was just constantly in the books. There was always some kind of a program going or something to just educate myself. And I did like Toastmaster classes and taught classes, helped co-develop a program in there and just kind of brought that momentum out. Yeah. So it sounds like you did, you obviously, because you live in Utah now, right? You mm-hmm. didn't go back to Vegas or did you when you got yeah. out? Mm-hmm. So what did you do when you got out and how old were you? So I've been out for four and a half years. Um, so I was lo- just a little bit over 40, um, like four months, March. I got out in March. My birthday is December. Um, I got a job with my nephew and um Cause he, he was really flexible because my pro officers, I had two pro officers, a state and a federal pro officer. They were just very demanding on my time and classes. So 
he would just let me work when I could. And then I end up buying into a business with him. And that be kind of came my foundation and that's kind of how I make my money. But I've really gotten into media now and trying to, I realized that there's such a huge space for people in media and it's not limited by your history, you know, and I work very closely with my therapist on programs that help people. Right now we're working on a program in the youth prison um, to get them training the guys that are aging out of the system. That are getting, so. What happened to your brothers that were in the gang? Well, only one of my brothers, he passed away. He, uh, yeah, I'm he sorry to hear that. They passed away in a car accident. Well, did they ultimately leave the gang too? I think just age out. Yeah. Well, you know what? Aging out of the gang is a huge thing. Most people age out. If you get to a certain point where you're no longer like the younger guys ain't respecting the older guys like that, you know? Really? Well, they're, they're not the guys that are out there doing it no more. You know? so it's not play. like you don't just give them, you know, I, uh, okay, I can like mob movies. I love to watch mob movies. <laughs> like the old Italian guys, you know, they're respected. They're not out on the street anymore, but they're still respected. It's not like that. Yeah, they're respected, but like they don't get to make the calls no more. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. younger guys make the calls. What about your mom? I mean, was she, did she also accept that that this is just the way life is or was she heartbroken every time you went back to prison? Oh, yeah. She was heartbroken. She dealt with a lot of it, you know. Um, but I think it's pretty normal to her because she did it with my brothers and sisters. Like, I have three sisters that have been in prison, too. Really? Yeah, I got, like, oh, so, many of my, so much of my family's been in prison. Like, I have cousins and stuff, nephews in prison right now. So did other parts of your other you people in your family, like, they kind of continued the lifestyle? Yeah, there's still people in it. Do you try to talk to them, influence them? Because obviously you've done something different. I do. I try to when I can. There's just not very many that are even interested in listening. And the ones that are, are kind of already doing it. There's a group of us that spent a lot of time together, but we've all like removed ourselves from that. There's still a group of them that persists. So do you have any ideas now having, you know, lived the life that you have? Do you have, like, what's your theory about how to, I don't know, inspire kids to do something different? Like to, to be the, the 30, 40-year-old Mike at 20 instead of going through all that stuff. What do you think? I, I, I haven't figured it out. I have no idea. Just wondering what you um, think. I think. Trying to normalize therapy, people going to therapy is huge. Um, and like I said, representation, seeing somebody who's gone through it and has accomplished, which I feel that there's enough people out there like in the digital world that they could see it more commonplace. It just doesn't have to be one or two people, especially with hip hop and the hip hop community, because there's a lot of people in those spaces that have been through those situations that are now in the podcast space or YouTube or have these shows that are at, in a good place now that have been like in prison or been through the system or, and just providing opportunities. Like we talked about giving opportunities and letting them see other things. Cause 
a big thing now is a lot of these kids now, their parents grew up in the meth age. So these kids are kids that are growing up, growing up around meth. And that's just a whole other monster from what I hear about it. But so a lot of these kids have seen nothing but that too. So where I saw gangs and like crime, these guys are seeing like drug abuse and stuff like that. So I think just yeah. giving them somebody that they can build a relationship with that they could trust, you know, that will help them provide right opportunities. So what, let's talk more about some of these other things you do, like in your LinkedIn profile, justice reform champion, access to excellence founder. Let's talk about that stuff. So access to excellence is, it came out of a program that was in the prison that they actually, they do it in the prison now. Um, what we do is we we bring in somebody coming out of prison. First, they have to show the initiative in there by completing like certain classes and stuff. And then we get them set up out here. We have somebody um, right now. There's just me and another guy, but they'll either they'll mentor. We'll be their mentor. We will go in and we'll, like if they want to. Like one, of the last guy we just got him a job at a machine shop, and we went in prior. We had him the job set up, but I had already talked with the owner and explained his situation. And then I brought him in and I, we, we kind of was that mediary where they could understand what he needed as a parolee and what the employer needed. So we're very involved in trying to help provide a space where they could communicate and get an understanding right away. Like this guy might need to leave Tuesday at 12 because his parole officer is going to be that guy at that time. Because their, their parole officers would be very specific about stuff like that. So um, getting them jobs, getting them training, whether it's some kind of like technical training. Um, there's based off five areas. It's physical, mental, spiritual, educational, financial. And we get them education. We, we, did a, um, we partner sometimes with co-working spaces. And they'll come in and some of these guys that like, we find partnerships all over. That'll help you that they'll teach financial literacy classes. Um, I just got a couple of guys set up with um, courses. A couple, of, I got them scholarships to a couple of online courses. So we get a lot of people who are willing to help these guys. We don't have the capacity to take on right now. We got three people that we're working with, but we make sure that whatever opportunities that there's their stuff, they have access to therapy, some kind of medical. Utah's very good with medical for people coming out of prison give them two years free medical so we make sure that they know what they can get out of it and utilize it so we try to just help them in all those areas to give them a base knowledge and then when they're ready to move on we help them get the next step and then we ask them to come back and be a mentor to somebody else that's great i love that so I, that's what i do there with the access to excellence and then what i do on justice reform is i'm always sitting on committees for legislation new laws we just did, um, we just work on a restitution law that helps guys find, we connect them with a nonprofit somewhere that they have a common interest where they could work off their restitution by community service hours, but we create that connection. Like one guy's at the homeless resource center. He was prior to homeless. So now he gets to give back in somewhere where he finds meaning and it gives him, um, it gives these guys a sense of pride. Like, hey man, I was once here, now I'm giving this back. So. And they're working off 
a debt that the state would have never collected anyways that eventually would have made these guys lose their driver's license or their taxes or stuff that they would have replied on. So we just did that. They're currently working on um, they're currently working on a bill right now with, that I help contribute on that will help people that have followed a set of like a, you had to prove yourself for a year or so. I don't know exactly what they're trying to do, but and you get a certificate of good standing that says you can go to a landlord now or an employer and say, hey, like I might have a felony, but I've completed this and the state says that the New Jersey actually has one. And they're kind of modeling out for that. So it's certificate of good standing. And I was very influential, like my lived experience helped so they can keep juveniles in prison till they're 25 in the juvenile system that, that are given like adult sentences. And then they're gonna reassess them at 25 with the pro board and they can get a chance. So someone who may have got a, like a five to life or a 15 to life mm -hmm. or a 25 as a juvenile, they now get to stay in the system till they're 25 because I just shared what I went through. So that's what I do there. And a lot of that's through my therapist and she always has me connected with other people. Like I said, we're working on the program at the, at the juvenile prison, getting the guys set up for when they age out of the system. Because when they age out of the system here, there's no resources for them. They're not an adult, so they can't go to the parole officer or nobody. They never. Most of these guys have never had jobs. They spent the last year or two in the juvenile system. So I love that. So you're sort of, you're you're basically the proof that people can be reformed and rehabilitated. Yeah, and that's what I in the beginning. That's how I said, like that's how I try to live my life because I just want to show people what's possible if the right things are in place. And we try to provide those right things. And we partner with a lot of people here in Utah who are willing to provide those right things for people. Sometimes guys come out of prison that have kind of, that we worked with while they're in prison and we don't, we hook them up with people and then we just hear from how they're doing every once in a while. They find their own group of people um, that help them get to the place where they wanna be. So you mentioned that you have a son? I do. Okay. Yeah. So where, when did that happen? Is it one child that you have? And tell me. Yeah, about that. I have one son. He's 27. We're estranged. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, it was, I just had a conversation with them on Thursday for the first time in a long time with my therapist. It was very interesting, but, um, yeah, the results of prison. You know, he doesn't know me. He's like, I believe you're sincere and everything. He's just like, I just don't know who you are. Just like you said. And just like it made me realize that my dad was a stranger. Your dad was a stranger. I'm a stranger. And so. So what was that situation? Was that someone that you, was it a girlfriend? And then you went away. And so you were absent. Yeah. So that was the girl that I dated since I was young. We dated, I think we started dating when I was 12. She stood, she stood with me till I was, till I went to prison. Um, and I had my son between juvenile and the, while I was in the juvenile system, actually, I was 17. And um, I just started learning about the effects of prison on kids, visitations. And I was just like, I don't think I want my son to come and see me. Um, I just weighed the options and I was just like, I remembered when I first walked into prison I had already been inside those units because back when we'd go visit my brother, we could walk around inside there. 
And I was like, if I'm already know where I'm going and I haven't even been here as an adult, this is my first time in prison. I was just like, I don't want my son to experience that. That must've been a hard decision. You know, it was, and I kind of just find comfort in, he didn't follow my footsteps. And I'm, if that's what I got right now, I'm cool with that. Like I told him, like, you didn't follow my footsteps, now I'm going to find peace and comfort in that. Because my nieces and nephews, are, they're, in, they're following their parents' footsteps. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, he was spared that life, and I just find gratitude in that. We got a place where we're starting from, and it's going to be work, but I'm with, we're starting to work towards something now, so. You told me previously that you had experience with psychedelic therapy. I want to oh, hear about that. Okay, so um, I'll just kind of start really quick. Just give a brief. So did, did therapy off and on. Then when I was in that program, I had to do it every week. So I did it, and I kind of just got fascinated, and I started to see myself learn and grow. Um, got really – did a lot of therapy out here, started looking into a lot of stuff. Um, was, introdu was introduced to the concept of ayahuasca like about 12 years ago. Um, I, dated, I dated a woman who had just did it like the day before I met her. And um, so it always stood in my mind. I always kind of like researched it a little bit. And I've done it three times now. Um, I've done other ones, but ayahuasca's, I've done ayahuasca, I've done... Bufo, which is from the, the secretion from the frog. Yeah. DMT. Um, I've done like mushroom journeys, peyote. Where do you do that? Lodge. Um, or maybe you can't say, because I don't think it's actually. Well, <laughs> yeah, I can't give like specifics, but Utah has a very huge healing community, especially like where I live. Like huge. Like, so once you're in the community and you get into like, You'll, you'll, it'll come to you. People say it comes to you, like the medicine will find yeah. you when you're ready for it. So I actually found it through a mutual friend who's like, has indigenous roots. And one of her, one of their friends' family does the ceremonies. So um, what was the first one you did? The ayahuasca? The one, yeah. Oh, no, I've done, I've done the mushroom ones prior. I've done mushroom ceremonies they have those, like, Colorado's just a few hours from us, so you can go out there and do it. They have them on. They have them here in a lot of, like, the healing centers. Um, so can you describe it? Like, what's it like? Do you have to go there for, you know, overnight for 24 hours? And what happens when, when you do it? So the, the, the mushroom ceremonies that they do, are usually just overnight. You usually go in, you bring your blankets, you bring something to lay on, a pillow. Um, uh, it'll usually be dark in there. They'll have candles, they'll do music. Like they'll do a lot of sound, uh, sound healing, Reiki. That's somebody that's doing Reiki. Um, you just go into these like states where you have, you set an intention. First you set an intention, you might do some meditation some lot of breath work. And then once you start having, I don't know if you ever experienced breath work, have you ever done breath work? 
I mean, I've, I've done meditation. Is that what you mean? Or is that something? No. Different? So breath work, they have you do these really intense breathing and it kind of puts you in a trance like state and you don't have to have like very skills at anything. You just, the breathing will just get you there. It's like really intense, hard breathings. And once you start getting to that space, then you'll, they'll start to give you a tea. And the tea usually takes effect very quickly. But you're already starting to have like the energy from the sound bass. And then like some people might be raking and just a lot of people just have a lot of, it's called purging. Um, some people might like vomit, but a lot of people just have like purging, like crying or going to really intense like episodes of crying. Some people might just be laughing. Everybody just has these weird different experiences. Some people might get up and start dancing. Depending on what each person is individually going through and what they're trying to, what their experiences that they're supposed to have. Um, what, what did you do? I've always went in to try to get a better understanding. Like first was my anger. Like why am I holding on to this anger when I don't hold on to the belief of like harming people? Like I'm a big believer in like non-harm, but why do I still have these? So a lot of it for me was just trying to get an understanding of my anger. And what I got out of the mushroom ceremonies was a lot of connectedness. Like I felt very connected with people that I, a lot of people that I didn't even know. But I found this connection, this ability to connect where my past life, you don't connect. You keep estranged from as many people as you can. You keep your, your relationships very surface so you can detach easy but i just felt this strange ability like i was connected with these people and i could connect with them um so then i really got involved with that healing community with they do like ecstatic dances they have like the burning mans they have local regional stuff like that i don't know if you ever heard of burning man or anything. yeah so those are the guys they're actually called the burners i call them the healing community but they're called burners um that's kind of what the, the mushroom ceremonies have done for me was help open me up and help me connect with people. Um, ayahuasca is a whole different thing. Ayahuasca, it's usually there. You're usually there for a three-day period. You might go at like five o'clock on a Friday and you'll leave like whenever you're ready on, after like midday on Sunday. And you'll go in the first night, you'll... You'll sit there. You well. You have to. You have to prepare. You have to. No. No meats, dairy, sugars, anything for two weeks. Why? You're just trying to cleanse your system. Um, so they have you on a strict like a vegan diet. Like you're not supposed to have like consume marijuana, alcohol. You're not supposed to have sex. You're not supposed to like. You're supposed to try to cleanse your body as much as you can. And then you fast the day before or three, it's up to three days. If you could fast three days, but you at least fast the day prior. And then the first day you come in and you'll have a tea. They'll give you just a series of teas. Like and those will start clearing you out. You'll start feeling like stuff coming out of your body. Like you'll be blowing your nose a lot. You might have to use the restroom a lot. It's a series of teas that they give you. And then the shaman will get to know you. And if they don't like your energy, if they don't feel your energy, if they don't feel the energy is right, they'll just tell you that they don't want you there. Um, it doesn't happen a lot, but I did see it happen once. Um, but they interact with you. 
they talk with you, they kind of ask you what your intention, what your goal is, they get to know you. Then they'll provide a series of like snuff medicines, um, depending on what you're trying to achieve. And then you'll go to sleep and you'll wake up the next morning at like eight and then you'll just start your process. Start tea, you'll start the, the ayahuasca will come and it'll come into these little cups and you'll take it. And and they just start doing like sound meditation, sound bass, or one of the guys plays a, like a really good guitar and he says it's like this healing music or drums, or if you got any like musical gift that you want to like contribute to the group, you can. Um, and then about half hour, 45 minutes, you'll start to fill it. And if not, then they'll ask you if you want a second dose. But um, at first, it's just a lot of like releasing, like it's such a huge release of like, you'll, you'll start to cry. I did, every time it's different. So let me start with that. Every time is totally different. Totally, totally different. But I started to like cry a lot. I started to, I was dealing with a lot of issues, a lot of like thoughts of not showing up for my mom enough. So I released that. I was going through a relationship that I was ending and so I was able to release like energy out of my body. Um, a lot of vomiting, it's called purging, a lot of vomiting. Um, you go into these really, these trance-like states that are so intense, like you just want to get out of them. You're just like, I just, I just don't, just, I just need to get out of this thing. I don't want it. And I've done a lot of like psychedelic stuff, but this is like something like it's beyond. You can't. It's just really, really intense. That was my very first experience. My second experience was with the same shaman. And my second experience, I was at this really interesting stage where it was like, I was just making peace with like my younger self. And I was, I'm starting to get on 44, right? So I'm starting to get on in my age. I'm not a younger like, I'm out in my 30s and stuff. So I was able to like have this communication with myself, like provide compassion to my younger self and thank him for being strong and getting me to this place where I'm at now. And then telling myself like, okay, now you can move into like, now you're a grown man. Now you can. So it was this, I just had this really intense communication with myself. And prior, I just remember telling myself that no matter what happens, I was going to stick it out. And this was like my most intense one that I had. Um, but you just get out and you feel very light. You, you, you pot, stuff comes across you for days, like sometimes months, you still, things will come up. And then after it's about an eight hour experience and then everybody will Sit, they'll have, they'll bring out, they'll give us food, they'll feed you like it's all fruits and vegetables, kind of bring your system back up. And everybody sits down and in a circle and shares their experiences. And people will tell you stuff that you know is just meant for you. And you're just like, how did this person know? Like, I saw this lady, she looked at this girl, she never met her before. And she's like, I got a message for you. And she tells her this message about, her friend that committed suicide. And I'm looking at her like, you don't say this to somebody. And the girl broke down and she's like, that's, she told it, she explained exactly what the guy said 
when he passed away, what happened and everything. It was just, it blew my mind, like how these things happen, but it's just a very healing experience. Like, um, I'm, I'm trying to imagine it. And I, I've talked to people about this before. And just when you are, as you're describing it and you're talking about, you know, like the release, mm -hmm. you know, what comes to my mind is, oh my God, it's so scary to me to think about not having complete and total control over myself and my faculties and the way that I engage with people. Because I think in some ways, even though I'm like an open book, I'll tell you anything, I'm also still a bit guarded. And it scares me to think about letting that guard down. Is that what you mean when you say it's like a release? Or is it something different? No, no. The release is just like the release of whatever you're holding on to. It could be anything. It could be childhood stuff. It could be like if you're going through a bad relationship, something with your child, job, whatever energies inside you, the medicine gets it out. So like the resentment goes away. The anger goes away. Um, I can't say that it goes away, but you, you kind of make a peace with it. You yeah. find a way to work with it. You, you, in those things, in those, in those experiences, you find a way to make peace with whatever your demon is or whatever you're trying to struggle with or whatever you're trying to get out. You know, you try, and it's just interesting how it just makes mushrooms has the same effect, but on a very very a smaller scale like very very less intense this stuff like forces you to work on that situations it just seems scary to me i don't think i want to face my demon <laughs> <laughs> maybe not yet i'm scared i've worked really hard to bury them <laughs> <laughs> it's um you know what uh, because we've I've, I've offered it to other people i've recommended it to other people and some people aren't ready. Yeah, you you have to really be in a place. And I was at a place. I was just like, I mean, I've already seen crazy. So I was like, what else am I going to see? You know. But you hear stories. You hear other people's experiences, and you're like, and it's just everybody's different. And then I recently just done. I recently just did it in July. How often do you do it? I've done it three times. Um, when you often as you need it. it does I mean, like, does it not, kind of have a cumulative effect? Like each time you do it, it, it it's, I don't know, the, the results are more lasting or no, deeper? No. Yeah, yeah, you'll go, you go deeper. Um, I feel like every time, well, with my experience, every time I've went in, um, I've, I've gotten results that I've, I haven't had to go back and revisit. So the next time I go in at some, something, I go, I go in with a whole different intention. You said <laughs> earlier, I asked you like what your trauma was. You said you had a lot of anger, but I, I want to go back to that. Like, you know, we could all look back on our childhoods and pinpoint things that we have resentment or anger over. And, you know, to my anger might seem silly to you you know, your anger might seem silly to someone else, but it is what it is. You know, we're individuals. We experience them however we do. So 
what's yours? Like, can we talk about that more? Like when you um, go in, like, what are the things that are kind of getting attention? In the ceremonies? Yeah. Like you said you have anger. Yeah. So my first one was, um, my therapist would always push this concept on me that I did things that I had to do to survive my situations at those times. She's like, you no longer have to live that life. So a lot of it was me just going in there and because I still held on to so many of those um, thought patterns that they would still play out like in daily life, like until maybe a year and a half or two ago, like I would find myself like snapping and being, you know, just, just having bad like issues with that. Um, so a lot of it was me was like, the use or the need for anger just didn't resonate. I didn't have a need for it in my life anymore. Like yeah. there was no place in my life that anger fit. No relationship, my career, my job, my businesses. It just didn't fit anywhere. So I had to kind of make peace with it. And my second ceremony, I think I, that's where I said I was able to talk with my younger self and my who I am now was like, I thank my younger self for having that strength, you know, to make it through those situations. Like, and where would you get triggered? Like, where does the, where does the anger show itself in your life now that where you sort of realize it's misplaced? So I really, the, so I, this is going to kind of sound crazy, but I probably haven't had like an anger blow up for a year, at least a year and a half or so, a year, I'd say a year. Um, but it was so, I lived downtown, my, I got two balconies that oversee a major road and there's like a lot of homeless. And sometimes I'll see like drug deals outside my front, like right outside my front porch and I'll get mad and I'll go out there and I'm like, I'm this dude from the hood. Like I'm going to run out there and tell him don't effing do this around my house or whatever. Right. So that's the kind of things that would come up for me a lot. Why does that anger you to see that outside? I just think it's tr it's a tr it's triggering because um, I just grew up around it and I know what it is. Like I could see when two people pull up in two cars on the side of the street, one jumps in. I know what's going on. I I've lived that life, you know. And I'm just like, I think for me, it's like this is my safe space. This is my home. Like I don't I feel want like that they're intruding on your. Your space. Yeah. And I'm like, I've done so much to remove myself. And like, yeah, I don't want that around me. So, yeah, I I just don't like to see it. Could you move? <laughs> Could you move to a different area or? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, actually, that's you know a good question because I had mentioned earlier is like people kind of go back to the environment that they know. We just yeah. do. We all we all gravitate towards what we know. It's familiar and comfortable. Do you think that in still in some ways you do that? No, I live on a way opposite side. If I live down like in like I, I could probably be in the heart of downtown in three minutes. Um, I I don't. I mean, I don't. I'm not gravitating back towards that life. For me, it's like. I've learned that if something is bothering you, that there's something you got to work on. Okay. So yeah. I found, I've, I've, I've 
I always was like, why? I, I, I hated driving and seeing, because a lot of the people on the streets, so I'm going to say a lot, but there's a few people on the streets that I know. Like I, I pull up at 7-Eleven, some people that I grew up with, hey, Mike, what's up? You know, so it was difficult, but I've learned that it's a place I can find compassion. So now when I see him, I, I find compassion. And when I see these guys out there hustling, I remember, and I'm just like, okay, this is my reminder that I ain't in that life no more. So I can be grateful right now that if the cops come and arrest these guys, they ain't going to arrest me. So I was able to like change the story and be like, okay, this is just a, a quick little reminder from the universe mm -hmm. saying, Hey man, like you ain't got to live that no more. Just being able to place to find compassion or, you know, or even understand like that's helped me with like family members who are in those situations, you know, to have compassion with them in their situations, you know, whatever they're going through or why they still continue to persist. So yeah, I could move, but I love where I'm at. And you know what? I've just changed the story, the narrative chain, being able to shift your narrative for people, especially that have come with my lived experience is the hugest, probably the biggest gift that anybody can give them is learning how to shift the narrative. It's hard. It does creep back in sometimes, though, oh, right? All the time. All the time. But you have to recognize it. Yeah. Like, oh, that's the old Mike. Or, you know, me too. Like, we all do it. My, that's the old Christina. We don't need that anymore. What was the trauma for you? Oh, the trauma for me? Well, I just grew up around a lot of violence. My brother was in that jail for violence. I've always seen violence. I've been stabbed. I've been shot. Like I've been jumped, I've fought people. We their, their violence was just everywhere. Like I was actually born into violence. Like I was born the day my uncle was killed. So my uncle got shot in the head. Well, he's my aunt's husband. My mom went into birth, labor, and I was born. So I was just born into that energy. And then like my family, even the my aunts and my aunt's husbands and stuff like that were really involved heavily in like drug trafficking and my brothers were in and out of prison for violence all the men my sisters dated were all like in gangs and very violent people so just different kind of traumas um seeing friends killed like the first ones of our friends there was two of our friends that had a shootout in the parking lot we were in junior high they were 13 they killed each other so these are just things that I experienced growing up that were like indirect traumas before I started having like physical trauma. So you were just, you were just kind of like your body was just absorbing all this. Oh, yeah. I don't know what to call it even like negativity. Like you're always on high alert. You're like, your brain is always aroused because you have to be. I don't know if you notice it right now. It's still hard for me to sit still. Because I my body, I'm yeah. Problem, so there's a, there's a <laughs> book, it's called The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it tells you, it'll break it down to you perfectly in there. So I, it's a constant reminder that I have to be mindful and be like, okay, yeah, these guys might be out there doing that or whatever. Or you might see this or you might see, sometimes I'll park the cars, like people will park cars in front of our house and camp out there and stuff. So I have to constantly remind myself, you know, Constantly, it's just, it just has to be a constant bringing like mindfulness back. Do you feel safe? 
You know, it's something that I've just started, I've just started feeling probably in the last year is starting to feel safe. This might sound like a corny question. Do you love yourself? Oh, yeah. I think I'm the baddest dude in the world. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I just was listening to a, like, I had something on YouTube going, um, yeah, no, I do. Because I see what I've come from. And I promised myself that I would get to some place, and I did. And everything after this is a bonus. Yeah, I'm very confident. I'm very, I'm huge on self-care. I love myself. I, I don't, yeah. And it's take, that's a lot. That's taken a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot, a lot um, of people don't love themselves. No, no. So what about your romantic relationships? I I don't know if we just didn't get to it, but I haven't heard of like a long-term girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like oh, my current, <laughs> that's my current thing is like, so I, I haven't. Um, I've, I've had an interesting life as a man. Like I've, <laughs> I've met a lot of women. Like I've, um, I guess like I've been a bastard my majority of my life. I've had relationships here and there. Um, but I just had a very jaded idea of what a relationship was. I've just had women cater to me all my life. Like your and mom it started with your mom? Started with my mom. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And then the guy my mom dated, he was a, he was a very big womanizer. He loved flirting. So I just grew up around this kind of stuff. So I just carry that on. And I recently, well, it's been about nine months that I just got out of like my most intense relationship. And it was off and on for about three years, but it was just crazy toxic. I didn't know. I didn't have an understanding of like relationships. So um, it didn't work out, but it was like probably the best learning experience that I've ever had in my life. Um, it's been very interesting trying to date now because I don't know. I'm like, I can meet people, but what I'm looking for in a relationship, it's hard to find. What do you want? Um, what are you looking for? I think I need someone that's not, I'm not looking for someone to fix me, but someone that's going to support and encourage me through my growth process. Cause I'm so committed. Like every day it's a thing for me. I get excited about, learning more about myself and growing and finding out how to do things better. So just finding somebody who's like-minded, you know? Well, do you feel like they're not like the people that you've, you've been in relationships haven't been? Yeah, no, no. I attract a certain kind of, of people. I got, I attract a certain kind and it's usually not like. Well, maybe you are the one that's attracted to them. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, that, this is the complex part of my life that I really can't do. Right Maybe now. your picker is off. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. picking that because you know, well, there's sure. a there's a good book. Um, forget her name; it'll come to me. It's called "Maybe You Need to Maybe You Should Talk to Someone." Oh, and it's written by a therapist, and and I and she's very insightful, and she says that we we are, we gravitate towards our unfinished business. Like we gravitate yeah. towards what is familiar to us because that's comfortable. Yeah. That's our muscle memory. I agree. 
but maybe that's not what serves us anymore. True. So I would highly recommend that book. Um, yeah, it's been interesting. Like I, <laughs> I've just decided to be active, like very active about dating, but learning at what dating is another thing too. I've kind of just been on a thing. Like I've been single. I meet a girl. I vibe with her. We hang out for a few months, a year or whatever. And then, doesn't work out and we go our ways. What's usually, is there like a common theme? Like what's the thing that ends it? I just, I just don't, I don't, I don't, I've never really been in a relationship that I've had to work on it. So I just don't have skills. Mm -hmm, Like I've, I've dated some amazing women. Like, yeah, like I'm, I'm blown away by some of the women who wanted to be in relationships with me. With all my crazy going on, but yeah, I just we love the bad boys. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's very true. I just didn't have the skills, you know. I didn't. Well, I didn't have an understanding of what a relationship because I never saw any good ones model. Even my mother was in relationships that were convenient. They were. I, I watched her be in relationships that were of convenience, you know. So that's what I saw and what I've had experienced in my own life. Um, that's why this relationship, that last relationship that I had was so eye-opening because I had a therapist to walk me through it the whole time. And I was talking to her every week because I was always going through something in the relationship. But she was somewhat um, open too. She just wasn't all the way committed. Mm-hmm. But to the to like... Uh, trying to learn things she was still in the party phase i've known her she's actually one of my best friends uh sister so i've known her forever we Mm -hmm. met in like our club stages our party stages and stuff and but i learned like you're not trying to look for something in a person you're just what you want to look for in a relationship as opposed to a person right yeah and when i wasn't getting what i needed in a relationship i just saw like and it just created a lot of toxicity this is very toxic, but I learned a lot from that relationship, like a lot. Now I know what I need and what I want, and I'm not afraid to ask. And it was so crazy that I'm just like, I'm cautious now. I'm not just willing to jump into whatever, but it's very learning, very eye-opening. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like what all of us, anybody, like whatever your life looks like, well, all we really want is to have somebody accept us for who we are yeah, and let us be who we are. Yeah, exactly. You're and not that's trying where I'm to change at. everything. Exactly. And that's where I'm at is like getting to a place of self-love. I love myself, but I don't want, I don't want any of my parts to have to be, to give up any part of me. So do you feel like, I mean, it sounds like that's what you're saying is that you feel like there have been people that try to like change things. Like, oh, well, you can't wow. be that anymore. You yeah. have to be this. No, all the time. Every relationship I've been in. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. I get that. I hear that a lot. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, we'll get you off the hot seat on that subject. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing that though. Yeah. What? So what do you, you've come so far, you've done so many things. Um, there's such a great sense of self-awareness that you have. That's so many people don't have, um, you know, well, like, what do you want for yourself in your life now? Like, what are your goals moving forward? You know, that's interesting. And I really just 
probably started to come up with an answer that I feel is what aligns with me is like, I just want to be see the best human I could be. Like, what could I do? What could I accomplish? Like, how far could I go? What example, what legacy could I set? Like, how could I be kinder? How could I be, you know what I mean? How could I just, there's, um, there was this Oprah segment where she interviewed this guy in a plane crash. And he talked about like, he survived a plane crash. He was a survivor. He was like one of like very few. And he talked about seeing the lights that came out of the people's heads as they were passing away. And he was just like, I want to be, when I pass away, I want my light to be the brightest in the room. And I was like, that would be cool, right? Like, I see what I, the impact I've had. I've seen the way I've been able to come back to my family and have a really good impact. Like a lot of people, you know, they appreciate where I'm at and I, the contributions I give to my relationships. Like, um, I just want to see how far I could take it. Like, as far as I'm concerned right now, I'm content. If I ever get, if I stayed at this level, I'd be happy. But I know I could achieve so much more. So how could I do that? And what kind of doors could I leave open for whoever? And it's really big on like helping each people discover the individual path because nobody could take the path of another person, you know? So yeah, yeah that's where I'm at. I want to see like how far I could take this media, like how much good I could put out there with um, helping people with um, producing good quality content that helps, you know, contribute to like the advancement of people in my situation, my lived experience, you know, or whatever that they have to offer. That's kind of really my goal. Like media is going to be my new way to make my impact in my community, teaching people how to use media and exposing them to media and giving them opportunities to media. So what's like your job? Cause you do so many things. Like I lost track. What, like so, what's your full-time job? I actually own a granite and cabinet business. So I own a granite shop that fabricates countertops. So I usually do design home stuff at design at home, sell jobs. Um, sometimes we'll install the jobs if we have to. That's yeah, so I just do like high end kitchen and bathrooms, like really high end stuff. Um, custom high end cabinetry and then cabin the countertops. We do anything. Anybody that needs a bathroom done or like high end stuff that we do, we have fabricators that go out there. We we'll template, we'll fabricate. So that's my how I make my money and everything else I do is supported by that. Okay. And then what about the digital and, you know, media work that you're doing? Is that a business or is that more like a hobby right now? So it's more hobby, but I'm pushing more now to get it into um, a business now. So I had to finish up some credits and I went back and I've always been interested in film. So I, took a few classes and decided that I just saw the power of content. Yeah. I just saw the power of content and I was just like, okay, I need to figure this out and kind of decided I'd take my last couple of classes that I needed in, in photography and videography and got into that. And I probably get more offers to put out content that I'm able to commit to. Well, that sounds like a business. Yeah, I know it is. So now I'm, my goal right now is creating a team of people that I could um, sub out the content to and having them like my editors, trying to find editors. Once I could get a good solid core of like editors 
and people that are willing to shoot content, then I can go because I have the people that are willing to let me do the content. And I love the storytelling behind it because I'm just fascinated by stories, by mm -hmm. people's stories. How yeah. did you get to where you are? Like, so I love that. And like I said, I got a lot of people who I know that are putting out good content or have good stuff that they should be putting out in content. So that's kind of what I want to do with that. So if anybody's listening, they should reach out to you. Do they have to be in Utah? It sounds like something they could do. Remotely. I try to stay local in Utah. Okay. Yeah, I try to stay niche. I try to stay with underserved communities, people that have low, little to no budget to promote their businesses, um, like black and brown communities, people that are coming out of prison. I just did a really good, I just did a really cool um video for this place called the other side academy they're um well not the other side academy a guy that graduated from the other side academy it's a really cool program that they have here but he got out and now he works in addiction recovery on his own and i just shot a really cool video for him so people like that that don't have they think that it's out of touch for them to have content but they're starting to see the need for like social media and stuff i help them get good quality content out there I got a podcast studio. I don't know if you can see all my equipment, but I got yeah, I see stuff it. in here. I got everything everywhere. I'm about to get a space and I want to make it accessible to other people. And I got other few, few people that I met in Utah, local media companies that are willing to partner with me on a lot of this stuff too. So. And so are you also looking to be a guest on other podcasts so you can kind of spread the word and not really spread my word my story is kind of what i'm doing yeah i definitely story. want to, yeah um and learn to tell i definitely want to do my own podcast at some point for sure so uh, is it kind of therapeutic for you to talk about your story i think you did oh, mention yeah. that earlier yeah oh yeah yeah is that relatively new for you though to be able to talk about it so openly yeah so this guy amazing guy and i'm frank lewis he came, he found a way to bring Toastmasters. Are you familiar with Toastmasters? Yeah. To yeah. into the prison. And he was just cool. He didn't look at nobody different. He brought this group of people in there. And he was just told us, like, hey, man, I'm going to teach you guys how to speak. So you have to do your icebreaker, right? It's your first one. Yeah. Tell people what it is just for people that don't know. The icebreaker is just your the very first speech that you give in a Toastmasters club. It's just a brief description. I think it's two minutes or less of your life. So I remember giving my first Toastmaster, my icebreaker, and realized how much I left out. So I just kept trying to revamp it. Like, how could I tell it better? Then it just became more authentic. And then pretty soon I got to, when I think when I finally gave it, I just went up there and just talked. I don't think I had any notes or anything. But I, so then I took a position in the club. I was a club, like, I took a few positions, but at one point I was the president and they would bring in like really high end speakers, like would volunteer through like the NSA. Are you familiar with them? National Speakers Association. So. Oh no. I, I, yeah, I've heard of that. So they're a huge group, but they're like a bunch of like high end speakers that travel all over. So these guys would come in and they would just volunteer to come in and speak to us. So I had to like go up and I'd tell my story first. So the more I told my story and the more I started seeing the response, I started seeing like, hey, man, I'm, I'm telling this from an empowering place. So people are listening. People are interested in. Well, I mean, it's a life that, you know, might seem like normal. Like and when I say normal, I mean, just like familiar to you because you lived it. 
but so many other people haven't and it's foreign to them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why I'm trying to really get up my story a lot because I want people when somebody else, they come across somebody else with a similar lived history that they may see the possibilities. Because I'll tell you, like, I went from having, I was almost given the, almost a good portion of my life on that career offender charge. Yeah. My bottom matrix was like 24 years. And when my attorney went to the prosecutor, he was like, I can't do nothing about this. He's like, I, I could say I don't want it on there. He's like, I can't control it. It's law. He's like, and this guy qualifies. So it was just like, I've come from this place to where I'm at now. And like, I, I, can, I don't know where I'm going to end up at, but. What do you love to do so much? Like, what do you see as your purpose in life that you want to do it full time? Like you'd love to, that to be your full time thing. And, you know, you just do that all the time. Do probably, probably the access to excellent stuff, providing opportunities. Um, Some kind of like, I don't want to say in a social work, but kind of some of social work kind of field, but uh, I want to do it on my own, not necessarily like as a profession, but being able to just, show people possibilities, provide opportunities. Um, right now we're working on starting a group of like black and Latino men that are gonna mentor like young kids that are, uh, everybody has to, so it's based off of, there's a thing called the 100 black men in Las Vegas. And this is like 100 black professionals who would go out and like mentor kids coming out of the system. So I'm partnering with the guy from my church that we're trying to start something similar here. I got pretty good traction on it. So I kids like that, that are there's a huge need for for kids aging out of the system. A huge need. Our kids just in the system that don't got father figures. So um, professional men or men that are like business owners are are in a place where they can contribute. So that's a thing. Um, I'm big on community and connection. I'm always trying to connect this person with that person to try to collaborate on things. So just be doing that full time which is, I mean, it's at my fingertips. I've already do get paid to, for some of the stuff that I do. I could um, see you being a speaker, a paid speaker. I would at some point. I would definitely like to do that. Um, that would be something I would like to do. I do have some experience. Um, I do speak at some of these, when I do go like to the juvenile system, they take me in as like, cause I could, I could connect with them. I have that lived experience. So mastering how to use my lived experience. I'm about to start this course. It's, um, they have you ever heard of lived experience trainings? No. So it's a big thing taken off now. In Utah, it's called peer support. So they teach people with lived experience how to use it to help other people. Um, Yale just started this really interesting. Well, they've had this course, which I'm gonna be a part of here soon. Um, yeah, just lived experience training. Utah is just recently working on a law to start paying them like, well, like people that do peer support and get into it full time are going to get paid like decent with like benefits and everything. So um, that's a big thing of mine that I like working with, um, helping advance those kind of like lived experience trainings because people are not taking into account what we need when they're making these laws. And when we contribute Mm. to the conversation the law comes out and it's proven to be more effective when there's been a contributor that's had lived experience. And that's just, you could look at it statistically that 
when they take into account the input from people who have lived, the people who need these resources, the law is that much more effective. Well, it makes sense. I mean, what, how would they know yeah. what, you know, people need that when they haven't experienced it? Yeah. Well, thanks for being on and giving me so much of your time. We've already been doing this almost two and a half hours. Oh, wow. What can I do for you that'll help you promote you and what you do and, you know, help bring awareness to what you're doing. If anybody's interested, I mean, thank you for just sharing the story first off and mm-hmm. having the conversation. And yeah, if anybody's interested, I'd love to share what I can. Well, I'll put a link to your Facebook page and people can always private message you there, or, you know, send you messages and inquire about anything further that they want to hear about. And okay. I would encourage you to, be on other podcasts. I am. I'm trying. Well, you're the, like a lot of people say that nobody follows through. Like really? You, I've only had two people ever really follow through. A lot of people say, yeah, and you start the process. You send them an email. You do this. And yeah. It's- well, I'm sure. To, I'm sure that has nothing to do with you. It's them. Because if yeah. if you have a day job and, you know, other things going on, sometimes that's the biggest challenge is just following through with everything and being consistent. True. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. I will give you information about, you know, where this is going to post and the links and all that and when it's available, which would be in the next couple of weeks. Can you send me a headshot? Yeah, I will. Or, you know, any kind of doesn't even have to be a professional headshot. It could just be whatever photo you want me to use. Okay. And stay in touch. I want to hear how you're doing. Appreciate that. Thank you. I will. You're welcome. Start an Instagram page. I do it's have a YouTube. Them. Oh, you do have, have Instagram. A, well, I well, I do. So I, I have them, but I don't like really use them. But I'm going to I'm you know what I'm going to start. I'll start. Yeah, that's yeah, uh, that's you know, that's where everybody is now. Yeah. They always say all the old people are on Facebook, right? <laughs> that's what I hear. <laughs> yeah, it's um, that's an interesting thing that I'm trying to get. It's like a phobia to me. Not a phobia, but it's like I've just never used it. Yeah. So learning yeah. to use it, it's kind of just well, that that's why they say the old people use it, right? I mean, I'm 47, so I think that's why we're the ones we're like the old people that still use Facebook. So the the young kids are on TikTok. That's really where they are. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, and I'll stay in touch too. All right. All right. Bye. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.